But we're going to continue in our series this week in the book of James, and we're calling this one Practical Faith, because James is really one of those books that's just really, it gives you a lot of tools to use in your everyday life, and that the reoccurring theme throughout the book is that when you have faith in in God through Christ, that there's kind of this unlocking of life and the way that you handle and approach a lot of different situations. And what we're going to be talking about today is really the, the higher concept of unconditional love uh, that we're called to as Christians. And it's looking at the specific example of favoritism or partiality in the church. And the reality is that all of us have experienced the ugly side of favoritism or partiality in life. Uh, maybe you were passed over for a job uh, for some reason that wasn't fair. Maybe you just felt like you never fit in socially in a group, or, or you're even a black sheep in your own family. But in some way, shape, or form, you've experienced this partiality, this favoritism that's, that's unfair uh, for a variety of reasons. But, you know, as I was thinking about this topic, it kind of jogged uh, in my memory a, a story I want to share with you today from my own life. Uh, my, my story of my baseball career. Now, as many of you may know, I love baseball. It's my, by far my favorite sport. I could probably list a lot of uh, statistics to you of Twins players all the way back to the 60s. That is just way too much information. Uh, but my love of baseball started between the summer of 7th and 8th grade. And I was, uh, towards, towards the end of the school year, I was getting on the bus, and my friend asked me, are you going to try out for the baseball team today? And I had never thought about it. I didn't really play baseball. I didn't know much about it. But I said, sure. What time is it? He said, it's in one hour. So I said, okay. So I got home. I told my mom I want to try out for the baseball team, and I said, we've got to be there in 20 minutes. And so I uh, grabbed my baseball glove, which is one that I had left out in the rain multiple times. It was kind of like two, two by four stuck together. I didn't have baseball cleats, and so I figured we'd be playing outside. So I, I grabbed what had the most amount of tread, which was like a pair of sandals, and I put on some mesh shorts and a t-shirt, and, and away I went to baseball tryouts, which happened to be in the gym. And so here I am, uh, really underdressed and underprepared for this. And I have this tryout of, I don't know anyone except for my, my friend that's there. I had not played any baseball prior to this. And I go on to stumble through these baseball tryouts. Everything that was hit my way, I didn't catch. Every uh, ball that was thrown to me, I missed. And I did not look the part. I did not have the knowledge of anything of baseball. And I remember uh, the coach that was trying me out hit a ground ball to me and said, all right, grab it and then turn two. And so it was one of the few balls that I grabbed. And I spun in two circles, and I threw it home. It wasn't, no, it wasn't quite that bad. I just threw it home. I didn't know what he meant. And uh, so here I am, this guy who knew nothing about baseball, trying out for the baseball team, and then the rosters were posted. And the A team is like the good team, right? I wasn't on that. I wasn't expecting to see my name there. But then there's the B1 team. Name wasn't there. B2 team. My name wasn't there. And then the B3 team at the very bottom, I found my name there. And the way this worked was the A team was like the best. The B team was like the best of the worst. The B2 team was the best of the, 
of the worst of the best. I'm, not, I'm saying that wrong. But the, the three team is like the worst of the worst of the worst, right? And there I am at the bottom of the list. First game, coach doesn't put me in. I, uh, I entered as a pinch runner in the last inning. Next game, same thing. And in my mind, I'm feeling like this is unfair. They got to give me a shot. And so I begged the coach, can I please play in a game? And so the third game of the season, he starts me in right field, bottom of the order, but you put your worst fielders in right field and your worst hitter at the bottom of the order. And then something amazing happened in this game. I struck out every at-bat. <laughs> and I missed every ball that was hit to me. I was terrible. But the coach kept investing in me. And he worked with me off to the side. He explained the rules of the game. We had special moments where he'd say, you know, hold your glove like this rather than this. And he really worked with me until there, finally there was this moment halfway through the season that we had a, a tournament on the weekend, and everything clicked for me. I think I got a hit in every at-bat, and by the end of the tournament, coach was putting me in the leadoff hitter spot, and I was playing infield second base. And at this point of the season, I became an average baseball player <laughs> on the worst of the worst of the worst team. And it went on that I, I didn't go much better than average all season. But by the end of the season, I remember we were the little team that could. And we made it to the state tournament to the championship game. And there I was, batting leadoff hitter at the championship game among the worst of the worst of the worst teams. We ended up losing that game by a little bit. But I remember throughout the season, the coach being so proud of my progress. And every time I'd come around third base and I'd come home after getting a hit, his, he was the first one to meet me with a smile at the dugout. And I thought about this a lot. My, my thoughts at the beginning of the season is that it was so unfair of them to not at least put me on the B2 team and, and think higher of me. But the reality is I didn't deserve to be on any team. I maybe should have been the equipment manager with how I tried out. And I thought more about this is that this is how we need to work as a church, is to give people a chance, despite how bad they look up front. See every person with potential, and to know that who they are today is not who they could be in Christ. And we need to invest in them and believe in them, because the reality is none of us deserve to be on the team. But Christ, in his grace and his mercy, has led us on. Loving unconditionally is really, really hard. And nobody can do that to the fullest extent but Jesus. And yet, we're called to live in the same way. That's what today's text is really getting at, is to treat others the way Jesus would treat them. Treat others the way Jesus would treat you and love them unconditionally. Today we're going to be in James 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. But before we do that, let me just pray for this. I think this is a message, this is a word that's going to speak to all of us where we're at, something that we've all struggled with on either side of the issue. So join me in prayer before we read today. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love that transcends all things, your grace that covers all things. 
And God, we know that today, uh, whoever we are in you is not our work. It's not what we deserve, but it's what you've chosen to do through us, that every person has great potential in Jesus who can make them into a new creation so God, as we, as we read this, let's think about this as a church, as, as we think about each one of us and how we interact with insiders and with outsiders, that we could view people through your perspective and your lens of grace and mercy and love. So touch us today, God, with your Holy Spirit. Shape us and form us in your name and your power. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles now to, to James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord and Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is, not the rich who are, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a lot to unpack in text like this, and so I'm going to kind of break it down into three overarching uh, narrative points in this. And we have to understand that as a church, we are called to be different than the world. Partiality, favoritism is, is the way the world operates and the way it's always operated. But when you come to the church, when you're a part of the church, you leave that style of thinking at the door. We see that here in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, that's me and you, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, we left off in an important hinge, uh, hinge phrase or hinge verse last week. We talked about how we respond to truth as Christians, which is to believe God at his word and obey him. And the last words that we read last week is that we're to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. In other words, be different than the world. How we operate in here should be different than how the world operates out there. And what's being spoken against here is the topic of favoritism. In this 
defined means showing preference for one person over another, even though both people have equal claim in your life. And so, just to be clear, what favoritism isn't is loving your spouse more than someone else. Because your spouse has more claim in your life and in your love than other people. It's not unfair to say that if you have empty bedrooms in your house, that your children have claim over those rooms over your neighbor's children. It's not unfair to say to the person who can't carry a tune if it had a handle, you shouldn't sing on the worship team. Because someone, some people who are skilled and equipped in that area have more claim to that ministry than those who aren't. So it's not this wild, wild west idea that everyone can do anything. Whoever gets there first is the one who has claim. But this is speaking about something more superficial than that. The word uh, favoritism comes from in the Greek is actually a compound word that's, that, that means give face or give according to the face. And this refers to making judgments based only on the appearance of people. We're talking about unfair, unfounded beliefs about people that are contrary to God's word. And there's endless ways we can discriminate in this fashion. It could be how they appear, as we read in the text today, how they dress, the way they do their hair, the car they drive to church, or maybe weight or other physical attributes. It could be in how they think their education level or their sophisticated choice of words or the opinions that they hold. But even worse is just in who they are, the attributes about them that they can't control, their language, nationality, gender, or skin color. There's endless ways to discriminate against people, and this sermon could be filled with all of those ways we've seen in the world. But the point here is that we are to be different than what we see out there. We are to live without favoritism in the church. And this kind of unconditional love is really hard. But we're called to the difficult. Now, the whole basis of this idea is found in somewhat a sneaky word in verse 1. And that's in the word glorious. That if we are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not be like the rest of the world. That shows favoritism. And the word glory is one of those that can be kind of overused and underdefined, where we don't understand what's really being said here. Because I shared with you a story of, quote, my glory days in baseball, which were not really glorious. We could talk about the weather being glorious outside, but the word glory here, as these early New Testament readers would have understood, is how we need to understand it. That glory was a definition of God that explained how unimaginable he was and how unapproachable he was. You could never wrap your mind around the full glory of God, and yet if you did, the place where the glory of God presided in the Old Testament was the Holy of Holies. You would dare not enter the place where God's glory is. And it was this fear of God and this unapproachableness of him. And yet we live on the other side of Jesus. 
We read in the scriptures that Jesus, when he became man, carried with him the full glory of God. That when you look at Jesus, when you you experience Jesus, you are experiencing the fullness of God's glory. And now that Jesus has come to create this bridge between man and God's glory, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, And yet Jesus comes to bring us into the presence of God's glory. What we see at the foundation of this all is that we can't be partial and we can't determine who is and who isn't worthy to be before God because the truth is that none of us are. That only God is glorious. And God shares his glory with us through Jesus Christ. That's what's being said here is that if you believe that, that nobody is worthy before God, they're only counted worthy through the glory of Jesus, that we cannot show favoritism, because the ground is level before the cross. This is the foundation of all we believe, that no one person is more worthy of God than the other. But it's all covered in God's grace and mercy. To show favoritism is not just bad form as a Christian. It's showing that you don't understand what God has actually done for you. And this was said very clearly in one of the commentaries I read this week. He wrote that when you don't treat people equally, then you are demonstrating that you don't really understand what happened for you at the cross. This is why James essentially asks the question, how can you have faith, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you continue to show favor of some people over others? Partiality, in whatever form it takes, is a glaring indication of where you are spiritually. And at best, you are a spiritual infant, but at worst, you are not a believer at all. Favoritism is a huge issue if allowed to live inside of the church. And he gives one specific example. He could have given many examples, but he gives this example of the the rich man who enters wearing nice clothes and a gold ring and the poor man who also enters. And the, the rich man was given special attention. You sit in this choice seat, but the poor person has said, you just sit over there. You just be the equipment manager. We'll let you in here, but you're not really a part of the team. And so he goes on to say something important here, that this isn't just some trivial thing, because I could do the same thing today and say, you know what, all my tall people, you can sit up front. Actually, I don't know. That's not the choice seat. You can sit in the back row, right? Is that how it works now? You sit in the back row, and all the short people, you sit wherever. Or or we could say today, anyone wearing Packers attire is welcome, but, or sorry, Vikings attire. (laughs) But Packers, you sit out in the foyer, See, we can set all sorts of trivial barriers with each other, but, but what James is getting at here is this is more than trivial. This is illustrating something completely rotten inside of the people who are showing favoritism. Because he writes, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what he's saying is you have ulterior motives. You have evil motives by showing favoritism here. And in short, we could define that with one word. Selfishness. Favoritism at its core is is selfishness. 
Because you determine for yourself not what you can give to people, but what you can get from people. And I'll scratch your back if you can scratch mine. And that's exactly what's happening here is the poor person, you know, the widows and the orphans that we read about last week, what, what could they possibly give me? This just sounds like a time vacuum to me. I don't want to do that. But the rich person, hey, never hurts to be on the good side of a rich person. They can share with me their wealth and their power and their influence when I need it. But genuine faith, as we talked about, when we're on this level ground before our glorious God, is to know that all people matter to God and that one of us is more important than the other. You're guided by evil thoughts, which means that favoritism is a sin. And we'll get more on that later. But the whole point is that we need to be different than the world that classifies and shows partiality and discriminates. We need to look at all people as precious before God. And we look at the middle portion of this text, verses 5, 6, and 7. We understand another motivation here is that we need to look at people the same way God looks at people. And God kind of flips our understandings upside down over the world. His perspective is different than ours. And that's where he writes, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Essentially, he's saying, remember, God looks at this differently than we do. And there's many examples of this throughout the Bible, but, but probably some of the more uh, well-known ones are, are like in the, the Beatitudes, right, where Jesus, some of his earliest teaching, the first thing he says on the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God has always given special attention to the poor and to the needy. And once again, I need to make sure to tell you what this is not saying. This is not saying that all rich people are bad. It's not saying that all poor people automatically go to heaven. But rather, there's many who don't have these obstacles. These poor don't have the obstacles. Where Jesus says, you need to lay down everything before you follow me. And the poor person says, that's easy, because I have nothing. And so there's this, 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 uh, a lot going on in, in this text here. But to live in opposition of the poor is to insult them or dishonor them. And is essentially saying to them that I don't find value in you, and so you must sit in the dirt. You're not fit for the team. And we can find many ways to classify this. And we create this dangerous perspective of insider versus outsider mentality in the church. And we can say, we're the true church here, and those other people have obstacles they need to cross. And we'll determine who is fit and who isn't fit for our church. But we forget the basic truth, that we were all outsiders of the church at some point. And you may be in this church where your parents and their parents and their parents have always been in the church and you're born here, but the reality is at some point you had to put your faith in Christ. And it was at that moment that you were accepted into the church. We were all outsiders once. But God, through his grace and his mercy, have, has accepted us into the church. 
See, when you look at the world through God's perspective, he kind of reverses our status. Only God can, can make the poor rich. And so this also transforms our standards. And James kind of points out an irony here that there's probably lost somewhat to us because we don't know specifically what he's talking about. But in 6 and 7, he's talking about you honor the rich here and, and you're, you're dishonoring the poor, but isn't it the, aren't these rich people the ones who have been giving you a lot of trouble? They're not exhibiting the qualities of a Christian. He talks about how they've been extorting the poor. Later on in the, the book of James, we read about some of these, these rich people who are withholding wages from the poor who work for it. And they're dragging you into the courts. And I don't know what they're referring to there, but we see that throughout the book of Acts in, uh, in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are imprisoned in Philippi. It's because the rich slave owners were upset with them. And they made some bogus claim, and they got them arrested overnight. And it talks about these, these are the ones who are blaspheming the, the noble name of him to who you belong. They were mocking Christ and his followers. And yet, even through that, they're, they're welcoming them into the church verse first and rejecting the poor. Why? Because they're looking at people to their own standards. They're looking at others of what they can get rather than what they can give. And we do that a lot, whether we know it or not. We look at people through their outward appearance first. What kind of car they drive, what kind of clothes they wear, their house, their job, their title, social influence, their lifestyle. We judge and we honor people based on those things first. And so Scripture is turning that upside down. And saying we need to look at people through the lens of love and grace. Look at people the way Christ looks at people. And not who they are in the world, but rather who they are or who they can be through Christ. This becomes the law of love that governs us. And that's what we end with today in the final verses, is that we live according to God's standards, God's law of love. I'm going to read just verses 8 and 9 here again. That if you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And we'll look at that, that word royal law here. Again, what this means more often than not, when we hear the word law, especially in the New Testament, we automatically equate it to Ten Commandments or Law of Moses or, or Old Testament law. And in some ways, that's, that's true. That's where it starts. But in the book of James, we see some important dis distinguishers. Last week, we talked about the perfect law. This week, we're talking about the royal law. What he's referring to is the law as it's been fulfilled and elevated in Christ. And Jesus kind of broke down the law into the most simple terms. In this case, the royal law, how Jesus, the king, defines it. He was asked in Matthew 22, what is the most important law? And he kind of gave a different answer than, he, than they were expecting. He said the law can be summed up in two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he went even further in John 13 to say, a new command I give you that should govern all things is to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And I believe this is the royal law that James is referring to, the law as Jesus had elevated and simplified. We tend to overcomplicate things. And we want to see the list of 700 do's and don'ts. But it's really quite simple here. Live by the royal law to love your neighbor as yourself and to love others as Jesus has loved you. Again, this is incredibly hard to do, but fairly simple to understand. Love others more than you want to. Love others more than you think you can. What James is doing in this section is really explaining, again, this is not just bad form as a Christian. It's not just dishonoring people, if you show favoritism. It's dishonoring God, and it is a sin. He goes into the verses 10 and 11. It kind of can be confusing, like, now why is he bringing up adultery and murder and all this stuff? What he's doing is, is breaking down an argument that many would make, an argument that many of us would make. We'd be like, well, yeah, I show favoritism but at least they didn't murder someone. We justify in ourselves why favoritism was okay, because it's not as bad as the other sin. And that's what he's saying here, is if you're guilty of breaking one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Sin is sin. And an adulterer can say, I know it's bad, but I didn't murder someone. And we do the same thing with, with our favoritism. And this, again, is something we've all struggled with. Favoritism in and of itself is sin, which leads us to the most important point of this whole message. Is that where there is sin and where there is transgression, we require mercy and grace. And that's how he ended this portion. That's how I'll end it today. Is that we're to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Again, this is the freedom we find in Christ, the law of love that leads us to freedom from sin. Not because of something we have done, but as we read in verse 13 here, that because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, because mercy triumphs over judgment. We have been given mercy from our sin, even though we deserve judgment. And this is like any other sin in our lives. We rely on the grace and the mercy of God. And so we are called to also be merciful and just. Really hard combination to do as people because we tend to lean to one side or the other. You can't do both. But the place that mercy and justice was perfectly combined was on the cross. That's why we're here today. Because we deserved death for our sin, but Jesus took the just punishment of that death on the cross, and through the mercy of God, we can be covered in grace and forgiven. And so this is essentially being summed up here by James, is if you understand what God did for you in mercy, then show that same mercy to others. It's not saying you have to show mercy in order to receive mercy, because mercy is not earned, it's given. But rather, if you understand the mercy that was given to you, 
show that mercy to others. That's why there's no favoritism in the church. There's no undue or unjust judgments, but grace, mercy, and love. See, genuine faith expresses itself through love. That's how the world knows that we're his disciples, is if we love one another in the way he loved us. But it's also understanding that we never deserved that love. And we play a really dangerous game if we justify our lack of love for others. The law of love should govern all things. You love more than you think you can and more than you want to at the time. Be gracious. Show love to the person that you have a hard time loving. We all have that person in our mind, and as I said that, I'm sure a face popped into yours. Show, person, show love to that person. Because you remember that Christ loved you when you never deserved it. Be bold. And be willing to step out in faith as you love people. Knowing that there, it's going to be, uh, in an earthly term, unequitable. You're going to be giving more to them than you receive. But don't look to what you can gain but rather than what you can give and love. And be sacrificial, as Christ was sacrificial for you. Be willing to give up more than you think you can and love, knowing that Jesus gave it all for you on the cross. Faith leads us to unconditional love. But faith also makes it pretty simple. Love God, love others, and love others as Jesus loved you. Let's close in prayer today. God, undoubtedly, uh, we're all thinking, how could I ever do this? I, I struggled with that as well this week, and thinking about all the ways that I've fallen short in this category and the ways that I continue to do so. But God, remind us that all of this is covered and saturated in your grace. That in the end of the, the day, it's not about what we've done for you, but what you can do through us. So God, I pray for all of us. May there be more of you and less of us in this life and in this world. And may you shine through us. But God, in the ways that we can justify our lack of love and our favoritism or partiality, God, may you continue to convict us of that, to, to change us and to form us and to know that we are called to be different than the rest of the world. So, God, may your light shine brightly through us. May the world know that we are your disciples because of the love that we show. And God, may you be glorified in all of that because it is your glory to start with and your glory to end with. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.